Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, January 18th. We begin with our first monthly chat of 2023 with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. This time out, we discuss how the CPS is tackling catalytic converter thefts and hear what the chief sees as crime trends to watch over the next 12 months in the city. How has inflation changed your grocery shopping? We discuss how food costs have impacted not only our budgets, but also the nutritional quality of the meals that we're putting on our tables. We talk about the issue with Sarah Woodruff, Professor of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor. How good are you at identifying misinformation? We speak with James Whitbowles, Professor of Political Science, for some tips on how to weed out the sources of misinformation in our lives and combat what the professor refers to as our own confirmation biases. And finally, patients in Alberta can now legally add psychedelic-assisted therapy to the list of treatment options available for mental illnesses. We talk about it with a licensed practitioner of this type of therapy, Tanya Craig, Executive Director at Bloom Psychedelic Therapy and Research Institute. Well, every month we have the opportunity to chat with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld, look at all the issues and talk about the issues facing the city of Calgary. And Chief Newfeld joins us now. Good morning to you, Chief. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for joining us for the first time in 2023 and for the first time on QR Calgary now at 107.3 FM. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Andy and I were just on Twitter and looking at the new Twitter account called YYC Seized, which I think is a great way to highlight all the great work that that you and your team and your members are doing to tackle crime in the city. Well, you know, uh, Sue, these are big, important issues in the city, obviously. And as we'd expect, they're high profile when they happen. Uh, when you get shooting incidents and gun violence and this type of thing. So we wanted to find a way to localize and and sort of consolidate um, sort of information around the good work that is being done. Uh, The members are doing lots, and I mentioned at the end of the year there's been a number of really great arrests and some progress being made, and I think that's a place to sort of showcase and consolidate that for people to see. Chief, something that has been plaguing the city and is not just a Calgary-specific issue, the theft of catalytic converters. And, you know, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it because... You know, who would who needs a catalytic converter? <laughs> Apparently in hot demand. Uh, but what could be done? There is a solution. Can you tell us about it? Because I, I think it's brilliant. Do you know, this is such a frustrating crime. And I, I think, you know, I think about this. It goes back to the same type of thing when people would break into your vehicle by smashing your window and taking, you know, sunglasses or change or whatever. And we all think, man, what a pain. So I think in 2020, you know, 2022, 2023, what we're seeing is with the advent of things like cordless or sorry, cordless uh, saws and cutters and stuff like that, we've got people that will go around and actually steal a catalytic converter from under uh, your vehicle. And what's driving that is the small amounts of precious metals that are inside catalytic converters and the price of those have gone up and up and up. So what we're seeing is people can do this very quickly. They can crawl into your vehicle. We've seen videos where it takes less than a minute where someone will drive up, they'll slip underneath with a sawzall or some sort of a cutter, and they'll cut that off. So this is actually a a sort of a grassroots initiative by a couple of our uh, constables, Mike uh, Abagush and Brent Podeski, working with Cal Tire. And actually, it's, it's very simple, and the idea is just, it's a game changer in that it's engraving or putting a uh, serial number from the vehicle on the catalytic converter so that it's traceable. Uh, and that's something that wasn't there before. So once the catalytic converters were separated from the vehicle, it was very hard uh, in terms of evidentiary considerations to prove that that converter came from that vehicle and that somebody stole it. So like I say, this is a really, really smart uh, crime prevention uh, solution and potentially a game changer. Clever. I love it. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, the CPS anti-racism work, the ongoing work that the service is doing. And uh, I understand uh, there's a new website and new committee and just a whole lot of work that's being done to help further this. 
Yeah, we uh, made commitments in 2020, Sue, as you know, to uh, towards uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. And so lots of great work's been done. We had uh, an anti-racism committee that was put together at that time. That committee's been really great, and it continues. Uh, there are four new people that will join the committee, but one of the ideas uh, that had come up was a website uh, specifically for this type of work so that, again, the information and resources could be consolidated in one place. And so the launch of the website, I think, will be really good. People can get information on, you know, what we're doing, uh, what kind of initiatives we're progressing, where we're going to be in the community, uh, and resources around things like hate crime and anti-racism and systemic discrimination and, and all of the things consolidated in one place. I think it's going to be really good. Chief, you know, often when we speak with you, it's, it's things that are happening on the ground, things that we can see in the tangible. We, we had an expert on yesterday, a cybersecurity expert, talking about the proliferation of AI technology and how cybercrime and cybercriminals could use this technology. And it does seem like every second or third day I get a text or an email and I can tell that they're phishing or things I see on social media. How much of a role, and this is something we don't talk about too much with you, uh, do uh, the cybercrime and uh, the tackling of cybercrime uh, have within the CPS? You know, a fairly big role, Andy. Um, so CPS is one of the leaders in the country. Um, we should be very proud of the work we've done in the cybercrime area. We have uh, high capabilities, and those capabilities are generally, um, you know, you hear about them when there's high-profile cases of, you know, individuals targeting kids and stuff like that, uh, you know, sort of Internet uh, investigations and this type of thing. But I think, uh, to your point, I, I get those texts as well, and I think the amount of, you know, phishing and the amount of um, attempts by criminals just to just to separate uh, everyday Calgarians from their money has uh, really gone up. And I think, you know, there's great work being done uh, in the service, but a lot of the focus is around prevention because the reality of this is, as we know, is a lot of the perpetrators and offenders are uh, from around the world. And it can be very, very difficult um, to uh, prosecute or to get people's money back. So it's much, much easier actually to educate people around what to avoid and how to recognize these scams so that they don't fall prey. Chief, another uh, great initiative, uh, happy to, to bring attention to this one, CPS now starting to train members of the staff from the Alex as part of the partnership to provide better services for people suffering from mental health issues. So would these people from the Alex, would these members of the team kind of go out with officers to certain calls? Yeah, so this is another really cool uh, um uh, initiative there. And this is, you know, was kind of in the planning stages through 2022, and it'll get some legs here in the first quarter of 2023. So the Alex uh, and the police service are training right now. Uh, what we're going to see, we're calling it the communal uh, community mobile crisis response. And it's a pilot project that's going to happen in District 4. It's going to launch in early uh, February. And it'll be probably six or seven months to begin with, and then we'll see where we go from there. But initially, it's going to be a CPS member uh, one support worker and one healthcare worker that will actually be out in the community between 8.30 in the morning uh, till 2 a.m., seven days a week. And so the idea of this is to actually bring the appropriate response to people uh, in crisis or who are dealing with addictions issues where it's not an emergency, there's, there's hopefully no threat or no danger to anybody, and uh, we could actually have a response that's not necessarily a police response, firstly. Now, you'll notice I said there will be a CPS member involved initially, and really what this is, is in the early going, is just making sure we get um, sort of the nuance figured out around which calls when they come in through Calgary 911 and 211, which ones would go to the community crisis responders versus which ones would come to the police. Mm. And so initially the police will be involved, uh, but in the future states, uh, who knows? Uh, it may be that uh, that group will be totally functional on their own. 
Just before we let you go, Chief, you know, I know we're a few weeks into 2023, and I'm wondering, when we talk to different guests, and I don't want to trivialize what you folks do at the CPS, but we talk to, for example, uh, foodies, and they say, okay, here are the trends in 2023. We talk about fashion, what the, what the trends are, home fashions or otherwise. CPS-wise, in January, is this something that you folks roll out and look ahead to 2023 and look at crime trends potentially developing in the new year? Oh, of course. Um, yeah, so we do a lot of planning actually moving into each new year and then wanting to close off the stats from the one before. I mean, the reality of it is just because the calendar flips over, it's not as though, you know, the whole world changes because we move from 2022 to 2023. Um, a lot of the crime and issues, as, as we've talked on the show before, can be seasonal in the city. You know, we see when it gets colder, we see spikes in auto thefts and these types of things. But I think a couple of things to watch for us uh, in 2023 continue to be, um, obviously, the gun violence. We need to be focusing on, you know, um, you know, violent crime and, and high harm crime like that. So that's a big one. That's important. But we're going to continue to be focused on this issue of quality of life offenses and people, people's perception of safety, uh, whether it be in the downtown or whether it be on transit. And the other one that I think uh, has me uh, really interested right now is uh, auto theft. So as we know in the past, we saw a lot of uh, older uh, technology, a lot of autos being able to be taken with a screwdriver. Um, somebody could break in and they could start it, you know, not so much harder than if they had a key. Uh, what we're seeing is with new technology, they need the key. And I'm watching the numbers of carjackings and stuff like that that are occurring where keys are being taken um, and hoping that that's not going to take root. But that's something that we're very interested in as well. Um, but, yeah, really a lot of it is going to be around just the things that we know concern Calgarians, around the things that are making them feel unsafe in the city. That's where we're focused. Your members do great work. Thank you so much for the update. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks, guys. Have Thank a great you. day. You too. Mark Newfeld, Calgary Police Chief. Has the cost of food changed your eating habits? I think it probably has for a lot of us. And have those changes had an impact on the overall health of Canadians? Joining us to talk about it is Sarah Woodruff, professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I don't know how it couldn't affect our health because I'm (laughs) sure it's affected how we buy, what we eat. So how do you think or how are you feeling or finding that people are eating these days and the impact on our nutrition? Well, I think certainly, I mean, we've all seen the the cost of food rise um, in just about everything, right? From fruits and vegetables to to even, you know, butter and and dairy and meat. Um, And so a lot of people are now either finding cheaper alternatives or foregoing that, uh, that product altogether. And so ultimately when we when we start to change our dietary habits or what the types of foods that we're eating it can impact our health and sort of the short term in that we're not getting the nutrients that we need and long term that can lead to uh to some potentially significant health outcomes all right so let's break this down you know you have to let alone getting food on the table the nutrition (laughs) component that you mentioned are there options? Are there switches and substitutes that we can use instead of getting that, you know, I don't know, a fresh uh, leafy uh, spinach, uh, green spinach leaves? Can we get something, you know, the frozen varieties? Do, do they still stack up? Sure, absolutely. Um, nutrition stands across whether it's fresh or frozen. Um, and so, you know, using the using the flyers, uh, using different apps that are available, you can sort of see what's 
what's either on sale that week, um, and plan your meals accordingly. One of the most expensive things about eating is actually food waste. And so it's all that, you know, food that we don't get around to eating that spoils in our in our refrigerator. And so if you can try to plan your meals accordingly to use up what you have in your fridge, um, that's actually probably the best best recommendation I can I can give. Professor, how do you think the uh, the impact of, of inflation, the rising cost of food, et cetera, how does it differ for different demographics, different communities? I would imagine it's got different impacts on different people. Sure. The, the biggest concern is those that are either already experiencing uh, food insecurity or those among low income, fixed income, single, uh, single households. Um, and large families. Um, It's also particularly important for those that already have specific dietary or health concerns, that if they can't afford, you know, the food that they need, um, they could potentially lead to even even further health outcomes. Um, It's also an issue among uh, food banks and, and school food programs and those even hospitals or long-term care facilities, those types of programs that are already providing food to individuals in need. Um, and and certainly they're trying to cut costs now and, and the types of foods they're providing may not be, you know, the best option for their demographic. We're speaking with Sarah Woodruff, professor from the Department of Kinesiology, University of Windsor. Professor Woodruff, uh, let's talk about the importance and, and how we can, you know, A, Keep the money in our pockets, not spending frivolously, and find some nutritious options by planning. The importance of planning uh, during these times. Mm-hmm. Um, it really only takes a few minutes before you go to the grocery store to either take stock of what's already in your pantry and in your fridge, or um, sorry, and to take note of maybe you know what are the sales this week. Take a look at your week. Um, you know, some of us you know, have busy days and we got to come home and have food on the table right away. Um, other times we have longer longer amounts to prepare our food. So take stock of what's, you know, happening in your life. And if you just plan out four or five meals for the week, um, you might have leftovers one night and you might go out another night, but you can buy the food that you need for that week or that you are going to consume. Um, if you've got a, a recipe that only calls for, you know, half the head of broccoli, then you can certainly find another meal that week that will use up the mm-hmm. other half, therefore not going to waste. Great reminders. It's an ongoing discussion for sure. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Woodruff, professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor. You can't believe everything you read online, and it's more important now than ever to teach our kids to be critical of the information presented to them. Joining us to discuss how to tackle misinformation and confirmation bias is James James Wittables, Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor. Good morning to you, James. Good morning to you. Well, let's start things off with a definition, uh, the term confirmation bias. How do we define that? Confirmation bias is where you hold on to the beliefs and what you think is knowledge that you have in the past, uh, even when it's contradicted by something that's new. 
Okay, so Professor, how does confirmation bias and misinformation impact our decision-making then and our critical thinking? What kind of impacts does it have on that? Well, you're going to be lured to misinformation which, which agrees with your worldview. So if you hear misinformation and um, you, you think it's true, you're likely to operate on the basis that it is true and re- reconfirm your beliefs. So the, um, the process I go through is to have people become more self-aware of their confirmation bias tendencies. I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, that confirmation bias has been around for a long time and misinformation has been a long, uh, around for a long time, but been highlighted by the Internet, by social media, by what we do online. Is, is that the case? Yes. So many uh, new news operations have started up online that are not trustworthy. So it may appear as though it's a straight news uh, approach, but it's actually funded by a propagandistic interest. And it, it, it looks like news, but it's actually uh, news framed from a more propagandistic point of view. Self-awareness can be a difficult thing. So how can we become more aware of our own confirmation bias and then try to overcome that when we're reading things? It's hard to know you're biased sometimes, isn't it? Yes, that, that's exactly the problem, and, and people are defensive when they're told that they're looking things at things from a biased perspective. The process I use in my course is to explain the, the concept of confirmation bias and cognitive biases generally to my students. We look at some YouTube examples which look at the, the social side of confirmation bias, and then the students are, spend a weekend looking for confirmation bias in the media, in the people around them, but most importantly in themselves. It's a way of becoming aware of something that you weren't aware of before. And it helps you check um, your confirmation bias when you're reading information that may agree or disagree with your worldview. So it sounds to a certain extent subconscious and we have to learn our way out of it. Is, is that the case? Yes, absolutely. To become more, more self-aware, as I say in my book, more self-aware is self-critical. So if you're aware of your processes and in, in, in situations which you engage in confirmation bias, you can correct them and um, begin to learn the world in a more accurate way. And I would think, Professor, right now, you know, the, the world of politics is certainly where we see a lot of that. And that is where we need to be a little more critical of our own thoughts and our own beliefs because... You know, we're so divided right now, not just in Canada and North America, really, but around the world. So because of our confirmation biases. Yes, yes. So we have to um, uh, take uh, our our job as citizens more seriously and not be so passive about news consumption and try to engage um, news with which we may disagree on occasion as a way of learning Um, what other perspectives there are in the world. But you're right about politics. Politics is where almost all of us uh, have confirmation bias. It seems to be strongest in the area of politics. Okay, so let's break down how this can be detrimental. What are the potential long-term effects of confirmation bias and misinformation on society as a whole. I mean, if, if one individual has it, that's fine, but the, the strength in numbers of those who are practicing confirmation bias and following misinformation, what can that do to us? 
Um, well, you see, the res- I live in the U.S., and you see the results in the states where people uh, don't even really engage um, political issues. It's sort of an identity politics. Um, QAnon, that conspiracy theory, is sort of a form of identity for people that they uh, really uh, adhere to and subscribe to. It's almost like a religious faith. And um, that needs to be unraveled, and uh, people need to readjust their, uh, the way they look at the world. The expression of going down the rabbit hole uh, means you're following conspiracies deep into the web. And um, the Internet has uh, made conspiracy um, proliferation much more possible. Um, the, the lies that, that are available online would have been um, through uh, communications from right-wing sources like the Ku Klux Klan or the John Birch Society. Uh, These days, it's much easier to get that kind of propaganda out online. So how do we then, how how do we sort of balance, you know, our confirmation bias and misinformation with the need for free speech? That is a complicating issue. Um, uh, the idea, I think, is to create more critical citizens from the beginning so that we don't um, engage in sort of frivolous um, negative examples of free speech in the sense of uh, everybody can speak, but a lot of people can use that speech to lie. And so we need to be able to, to teach people, not just students today, but certainly the adults, how to ferret out um, what's real from what's not. Is there an age demo? that is affected more by uh, the bias and the misinformation. I know that, uh, you know, it seems like the younger set more so on social media, uh, but uh, some of the older folks might not be familiar with these sites and might follow and, and travel down a rabbit hole that is erroneous. Is, is, is there a demo? Yes, confirmation bias is uh, more prevalent amongst people uh, over 50. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they're more established in their politics, so their online experiences tend to lead them to places which with with which their politics will be agreed with and so um uh, youth are also subjected to this kind of thing because they're kind of sloppy about what is what is what news sources are what are reliable news sources so everybody suffers from it so to speak but it seems to be more prevalent amongst uh, older folks we need to be better critical thinkers we need to at least you know confirm the information that we're we're in, indulging in and make sure that it's accurate before we start sharing it and spreading it. A really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That is James Wittebowles, who is a professor of political science at the University of Windsor. Uh, for me, what I do, if I see something online and it interests me and I want to know more, I, I search on Google, look at the different sites, the news organizations, yeah. or those perhaps authors uh, you know, if, if they don't, if they're not with an established organization, it's your, it's, it is on you. That's the thing, right? It, and it's not that you know, every network could be trusted and the most accurate news when we were younger. And some lean in certain yeah, directions. Absolutely. We know that but, both you know, ways. Yeah, we would have four or five or just a handful. It seems like news organizations or, or, or print publications back in the day. There are just so many that you have to weed these things out. Find those credible sites. Find those sites that align with you and those that don't. And when you see something on a site and you think, oh, I, I don't know, I don't know the name of that. It's not, you know, it's not a CNN, for example, no. whatever, that's a bad example, but it's not something you recognize. Google that organization. You will very quickly find out where that information is coming from. 
from which direction, whether it's legit or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday on the show, we were talking about a a psychedelic renaissance of sorts in terms of dealing with mental health issues, with Alberta perhaps trailblazing a new path for the treatment of mental illness. So joining us to continue the conversation is Tanya Craig, Executive Director of Bloom Bloom Psychedelic Therapy and Research Institute. Hi, Tanya. Good morning. Thanks for being in studio with us. Yes, it's so fun to be here. Thanks. Appreciate it. It's, it's nice to see you face-to-face and talk about it because it's a big deal. This this type of therapy is really becoming important, not just here in Alberta, in Canada, but around the world. So tell us uh, specifically about Bloom Psychedelic Therapy and Research Institute. What, what do you do there specifically? So first of all, I'd like to say that I'm so proud that we are now not-for-profit. That has just happened this week. We are awesome. um, one of the only clinics in uh, North America that are that. So at Bloom, we utilize ketamine as a psychedelic and ketamine is actually used off-label because it was actually designed as an anesthetic and it's used commonly in Emerge, on ambulance, and we use it in multiple dose ranges. And at Bloom, we actually use it in two dose ranges, one psychedelic and the psychedelic range allows you to really break free of your current construct of... um, you know, what get beyond your perspective. And when people are coming back to their body, back to lucidity after that psychedelic treatment, they're starting to realize I am something beyond my symptoms. And then the other dose range we use with ketamine is psycholytic. And so it's slightly lower. It almost mimics MDMA. It allows for a heart opening, um, allows for self-compassion. And we use it in conjunction with therapy in the therapeutic setting. And they will be able to access different areas of trauma or different cognitive constructs that have been hard to access in regular therapy. So when it comes to this sort of therapy, uh, Tanya, let's let's break it down. You've explained the the, the types and the different effects and and the result. But how do you know somebody's a good candidate for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ketamine and and would be a good fit and could could solve their problems? Mm, Thanks for asking that. So first of all, there is such a hype about psychedelics and it's purported as this uh, magic cure, magic pill. And it's not. We go through a very uh, careful selection criteria. So we first have someone see our psychiatrist for a psychiatric assessment. Then we have them see our doctor to make sure that there's no medical concerns. And then sometimes we'll even meet and greet with our therapist to make sure that they can really understand and grasp that we utilize ketamine as a catalyst, not as that uh, only uh medicine to be able to break through the areas that they need to. So somebody who's ideal for using a psychedelic is someone who has a really strong sense of self. So they know at their core really like who they are, but they're dealing with symptoms that they can't break free from. They're dealing with um, constant repeated patterns that just can't quite get ahead of. They've done therapy or they've used uh, pharmaceuticals and they're just not getting symptom relief. So once you're in this treatment then... What is happening, so you kind of explained it a bit, but what what is happening to the person who has the mental health challenges or issues that you're able to help them then? Because I think probably a lot of people at home are just sitting, okay, well, these people are just going to this office and getting high. That's not what's happening, right? Yeah, not at all. So first of all, let's back up. Our program is 11 weeks long. You start off with pre-treatment. So we talk about what is ketamine? How are you going to manage it? We also talk about what is your timeline? Like what is actually going to present while you're breaking free of your constructs? What's what's actually going to surface that you've been 
uh, tampering down. So there's a lot of hard work that happens. Then there's four weeks of ketamine treatment. So you come in twice a week, you do a psychedelic session, then you'll do a psycholytic session with your therapist. The entire time we're supporting you as an entire clinician team with uh, the psychiatrist, the doctor and therapist. And then we're going to finish it with integration. Psychedelics are only really appropriate when there's a real strong wraparound of integration. So you can make sense of what the heck it is you just opened up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, people aren't coming in and just having a happy trip. You, <laughs> you got to do the work. A lot, of, do. a lot of stigma that would, you know, lead people yeah, to believe yeah. that that's what you're doing there. And you maybe get some flashing lights and people are wearing tie-dye. Not the case, though. <laughs> um, you mentioned the 11-week time frame, Tanya. But I, uh, I'm wondering, you know, in your experience, uh, as far as the pace of, of being effective. Is this about the same pace as a normal therapeutic session or, or do you see results quicker, so to speak? Mm. The In the psycholytics, so that lower dose range that we use while we're in conjunction with therapy, it is remarkable what happens with the rapport building between the client and the therapist and also the client's ability to understand themselves. So what I'm seeing clinically in that setting is people are really... It's almost like uh, it's on steroids, therapy on steroids, because you're accelerating through the process because there is a softening, because there is this level of safety that you'll feel because of the ketamine uh, to be able to explore those areas that have maybe been too scary, too dark, too limiting. Um, you'll have a greater tolerance while the ketamine's on board. I know there are other psychedelics that are being tested. Mm -hmm. uh, ketamine's the only one that you're able to use or we're able to use in Canada right now, right? So, uh, you know, what kind of um, training and research and, and all that needs to go into before you are even able to use this in your practice? Mm -hmm. So we, we do have, with Health Canada, we have access to psilocybin, but it's only in clinical trials um, and MDMA as well in clinical trials. So the training that's required right now, regulatory bodies like the CPSA, uh, College of Physicians, Surgeons of Alberta is who um, we're responsible to. And in that, they haven't really detailed what specific classes or courses that we need to take. At Bloom, we actually go above and beyond. We have everyone trained outside of us, but we also have experiential experiences because how on earth is your clinician going to be able to understand what you're going through mm -hmm. if they themselves haven't gone through it? Mm -hmm. Very good points. Uh, thanks for shedding some light on it. Are you, you're at bloompsychedelic.com, is that right? That's correct. Bloompsychedelic.com to learn more. Thanks so much, Tanya, for your time. <laughs> thanks for having me. This is Tanya Craig, Executive Director at Bloom Psychedelic Therapy and Research Institute. And again, at bloompsychedelic.com.